Hello and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. We exist to see lives transformed through Jesus and are located in the heart of Surrey, BC, Canada. To find out more, visit us at horizonchurch.ca. We hope this message blesses and inspires you. If I haven't met you, my name is Daniel. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Horizon Church, and we are in the middle of a series on Nehemiah. Pastor Craig has spoken uh, a couple weeks, two weeks so far, uh, looking at chapter one and chapter two. And if you haven't, uh, just right now, pull out your phone, set a reminder, uh, and go back and watch those. As we continue through Nehemiah, these weeks are going to begin to build on each other, and we're pulling uh, from different aspects of different messages. But just a quick recap as to why are we looking at the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah is uh, a retelling, a historical retelling of what uh, theologians would call the second exodus. Uh, and essentially what this means is the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with this, uh, they had given themselves to idolatry. Uh, they had followed other gods and did a bunch of stuff. They said they, that God said, hey, don't do this. This is going to keep you whole. Uh, they ignored that. And then uh, God actually, they get brought into exile, so they get held captive. And then this is the, the retelling of it. This Ezra kind of goes a little bit before Nehemiah. They go, they're kind of happening at the same time in some ways as well. Um, but this is the story of rebuilding. Ezra looks at the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, Nehemiah looks at the rebuilding of the city. And so we find this city that's in ruins. As they look around, um, there's just broken stuff everywhere, buildings torn down. Uh, they're distressed, they're not really sure what's going on, a little bit confused, lack of direction. And at this point, if you're like, oh, now I get why we're talking about this, this may sound like the last year that we've had. Uh, and we want to look at this. I, I think uh, there's probably two types of people. Either COVID has caused a tearing down of aspects of your life, or COVID has revealed the need for some tearing down and rebuilding in your life. What do I mean by that? Um, whether it's a job loss or stress or marital issues or college doesn't look the way you thought or grade 12 just wasn't what you expected it to be, a lot of issues with health and family, and that can cause just like this ruin to your life. Uh, but for some of us, uh, the COVID has, whatever's inside of you, pressure just reveals that. Pressure doesn't cause things to happen. And COVID could have been a pressurized uh, tool that the Holy Spirit may not, I'm not saying he caused it, but might be using to reveal some things in you. Maybe you'll see that in your frustration at things, your lack of communication, your quickness to anger, or just be on edge with certain things, or you might just be noticing certain things in your life that, that might be revealing, that maybe might be revealing that there needs to be a little bit of rebuilding. Uh, we're going to start in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to kind of make our way through there. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you haven't yet, uh, there will be another e-blast going out today. Uh, so you can sign up for our reading plan going through Nehemiah if you haven't. Um, and so you can look at that. And if you, you can jump back on this week, you can still kind of catch up. It's not a whole lot each day. Uh, but so you just can be reading through the book of Nehemiah with us as we speak on it. Um, and if you're taking notes, as we always encourage you to do, um, I encourage you just to write down the title, A Call to Rebuild. A Call to Rebuild. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. God, as we, as we look at this topic and we look to the historical events of Nehemiah, 
God, would you speak to us and where we're at right now? God, we believe that your word is active, it's living, and it has that ability. It's not outdated, it's not archaic, but God, would you help us to build our lives in a way that lasts, to build our lives in a way that honors you? Yeah, we just thank you, God, for your presence in the midst of worship, and as we continue today, we just pray that you'd speak in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, Nehemiah, we're not going to get into reading it, but just a, a couple key points. Uh, we're going to circle back to some of them uh, in future weeks. Uh, but we see that there's this gathering of people, and Nehemiah is about to give the call. And we started this year with a series called Dangerous Prayers on Search Me, Break Me, Send Me. And what we see in verse 17 is kind of the result of Nehemiah's personal Search Me, Break Me, Send Me, which is kind of interesting. And, and we see that he walks around, he just kind of takes an assessment he doesn't tell everyone, doesn't go on, a, here's the big plans that I have. He just kind of goes about his way quietly and, hey, here's what we're going to do. And, and then he brings people together to say, hey, here's the vision. And it's, there's an interesting phrase that he says, and I want to point it out because I think it's important for us to realize uh, what opposition means and doesn't mean. That we see that Nehemiah says, hey, listen, the hand of God is actually upon me. It's a key phrase that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that talks about just the empowerment of what, that God is behind this. So Ezra or Nehemiah says, hey, the hand of God's upon me is favor. His empowerment is there. And then the next verses speak of two buddies called Samballot and Tobiah who present some opposition. And they're kind of this annoyance that are going to be here this whole time. And we're actually going to spend a whole week just on that and this opposition. I say all that to say this. As we talk about rebuilding, opposition does not mean that you're going the wrong direction. Oftentimes it means you're actually starting to walk in the right direction. That just because you're facing opposition does not mean the hand of God is not upon you. doesn't mean you heard wrong or speak. There's other things that we can look to to try and grasp if that's right or wrong. But opposition does not simply mean that what you're doing is wrong. And now we're going to jump into chapter 3. For those who have read chapter 3, you'll be happy to know we're not going to read chapter 3 out loud. It's one of those chapters as you're reading it is, it's, it's not super inspiring at first glance, I'll be honest. And there's lots of parts of the Bible that if you just kind of read, you're like, I'm not really sure what to do with that. So that's why we're going to try and uh, get into it a little bit together. But there's a couple things we need to make sure as we're reading, we keep in mind. Uh, what genre is Nehemiah? We talked about Nehemiah is historical literature. What does that mean? It is the actual recounting of events that took place. These are real people. This was a real place. Archaeologists have found this. My father-in-law was actually telling me that he's gone to where this was. He's seen the wall that David and Solomon built. He saw the wall that Nehemiah actually built and the wall that Herod built after it, all three on top of each other, that these are real events that took place. Not only that, it's restoration literature. What does that mean? It means this is God fulfilling his promise to the people of Israel. That he had promised this, that he's taking them out of exile. And, and what that means for us is how we read that, is the promises are specific to them, not you. Well, what do you mean, Dan? What? No, no, hold on. It means that God's not calling you to go to Jerusalem to build a wall. And there's different parts of the Bible that we need to be careful that if we're looking at the promises, what type of literature or genre is it, and how do I apply this? What we can take out of this is we see what's true about God. The promises might not be for you, but his character that kept his promise, that's still the same for you and me. And that's what we can apply. We can take leadership principles out of this. We not only see what's true about God, we see what's true about people. And if you didn't notice, people don't really change a whole lot. We like to think we are. We get real novel about our day and age, but 
not a whole lot has changed. We make the same mistakes and overcorrections that we see. And we see that there's practical lessons and spiritual lessons that we can glean from. Not only leadership lessons of Ezra and Nehemiah, but we can, we can look at it and say, okay, God, what are you saying to me spiritually for this? I know that I'm not building a physical wall or a gate or a temple, but God, what is this? How does this apply to my walk with you? And so in chapter three, again, we're not going to read through it. I would encourage you to read through it after this message. Hopefully it'll be a little bit more rich to you and you won't fall asleep like I did the first time reading it or do a heavy skim like I did in high school, all through high school. But to summarize, it's a detailed account of Nehemiah literally recording and writing down who did what. That's it. They had a city, they had a wall they needed to build. It's like, you build there, you build there, you build there, you build there, you build there. Uh, 40 different mentions of people. I think there's six different people groups. Like there's 35 different families. Uh, and, and what we can take from that is just everybody had a job to do. And so that's what's kind of going on here. Uh, and as you read, it's certain things to pay attention to these types of passages that might help you get more out of it. Number one, really important to know the cultural context. Uh, you can Google online. There's biblical backgrounds. eSword is a website. Or just search, like, what's the background in Nehemiah? One tool that I love to use is the Bible Research Project. Go on YouTube, type in the book. They have videos for it. Just help you understand the context. Uh, and second is repeating words. They, and I'm not talking about, like, the or a, ah, but, you know, repeating words. We're going to look at, too, next to them, apart from them, and repair. These are words that we see repeated an unusual amount for one chapter. And normally that's God trying to say something to us. Um, and I'll, I'll throw this out there for those who might be interested. Um, next, never mind, we'll keep going on. You'll hear about it later. Uh, the bottom line for today, it's not super catchy like Pastor Craig's. Uh, he's a word wizard with that type of thing. Um, but it's simply this, there is a call to rebuild. And the question is, how will you respond? When it comes to your life, your family, our church, our culture, there is a call to rebuild. What am I talking about culturally? The, 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 the current postmodern thought is that if we can just improve with technology, if we could just advance enough and get rid of those old archaic systems, we will reach utopia. Except the more technology we get, the more we just see people's hate. We see the amount of hate and destruction and confusion, the social anxiety. It seems everywhere you look, there's another disaster, there's another tragedy, there's another injustice, there's another failing government, another scandal, another corruption exposed inside, outside of the church. We become addicted to the never-ending news cycle. As a culture, there's a need for rebuilding. And personally, higher reports of anxiety, depression, and suicide than we've seen. Overdose numbers, numbers doubling, not only just the tragedy of a lost life, but the destruction that that brings to a family as a result. We're, most, we're more socially connected than ever, but relationally starved and distant and becoming uh, a growing inability to know how to connect in person. And certainly this last year has not helped. We're addicted to our phones and the dopamine hits that come along with it. This is not just teenagers. I'm talking of the grandparents that can't put their phone down and look at their grandchild or this. And I'm not bringing shade on this. This is something that God has highlighted in my life. Can I put my phone away and look my daughter in the eyes when she's there? Are we so addicted to connection virtually that we miss it physically in the lives and the family and the loved ones in front of us? 
That's just looking at culture. That's not to mention the spiritual state of what we're dealing with. And I believe our response can and should be the same as Nehemiah. A very sobering awareness of reality of where we're at. You can't build on what you don't understand. And sometimes I think it's the church, we still want to get to the preferred future of faith that we won't ask God to search us and show us of the current reality of our heart. We want to claim statements of faith, but we don't want to look at our own mess. And if we're going to rebuild, Nehemiah had to go assess. He had to see what we're dealing with. And the people would have had to remove rubble from past mistakes and destruction before they could begin to rebuild. There is a keen sense of awareness of reality, but yet a faith-filled hope for the future of rebuilding. This is what the gospel offers you and I. There's a call to rebuild. The question is, how will you respond? See, as we go through chapter 3, there's two themes that we want to be aware of. And then there's two specific things we're going to look at. But first, uh, the themes we want to look at are the personal and the communal or corporate responsibility. In chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, it kind of gives us a little snapshot. This is all throughout the the chapter. It says, the repairs, here's that that repeating phrase, like I said, next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hasab. This chapter's got some legit names, by the way. There's three different Michalogies, and they're different guys. It's not even the same one. It's incredible. If you're looking for baby names, Nehemiah chapter 3, you're welcome. Um, only really for guys, though. There's, they just says daughters and the girls, but they were included in all this as well. Anyways, Hashub made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Isaiah, son of Messiah, uh, Messiah, if you're like a Hebrew scholar, you're going to be just, you've already changed the channel. I apologize. Uh, but the son of Ananiah made repairs beside his house. We see that there's this next to him, corporate communal responsibility and the personal responsibility of their house. Let's move into personal responsibility. In chapter three, we see Nehemiah giving people responsibility. I love this. He doesn't give government responsibility. He doesn't tell, hey, carpenters, you do it. He gives individual people. It's painstakingly boring to read it. But it shows us that individuals had specific roles. It was everyone's job if it was going to be whole. There was personally rebuild the wall attached to their homes. Again, because in this day and age, the wall would have been built, and the outside of most of the walls was actually part of someone's home. So the, the integrity and purity and strength of the wall, they had personal investment to make sure that sucker didn't go down because it came into their living room if it did, right? Nehemiah wisely used selfish interest in his favor. Rather than anyone building the gates, you know who he had build the gates? The people who lived right next to it. Because if that gate went in and an attacking enemy came, they were the first ones to go. So you bet that gate's going to be strong. Like you ain't, you're not cutting corners. You're not, you're like, you have personal investment in the strength and in the integrity of that gate if someone's coming with firepower and you're right next to it. I love the wisdom in this. See, there's an unhealthy move in our culture from personal responsibility to corporate system responsibility. And I want to give an example here, seatbelts. Segway, smooth, right? That wasn't a jerk at all. I love it. If we think about automobiles, automobiles today we have airbags, the dashboard, steering wheel, and doors. We also have seat belts across our body and our waist. But autos didn't begin this way. Although the earliest seatbelt was invented in the 1800s, it was not until 1950 that they began to appear in customer cars. 
By 1963, 23 states uh, had enacted legislation that required seatbelts in the front row. And by 1968, five years later, uh, the federal government enacted a law requiring that all vehicles except buses have seatbelts. This is a study in the states. So in review, we go from no seatbelts in automobiles at all, heavy personal responsibility, don't drive like an idiot, and then it moved to this kind of mutual where like, okay, moving from individual choice. You could choose and ask the automobiles if they could put it in for you, but you didn't have to. And then it finally got to adding company requirement and laws enforcing compliance of individuals. We see that it came to the, the companies had a responsibility and individuals did. So there was a mix of responsibility of corporate and personal. But even with this evolution, the safety question still resides and, and depends on the individual. See, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention in 2015 did a study, and more than half, 59% of teens and adults up to 44 from ages, I think it was 13, who died in car crashes were unrestrained at the time of the crash. Personal responsibility supersedes other forms of responsibility. What, what do you mean, Daniel? Sh should the government be better? Yes. But you can't blame everything on the government. There's a move in our culture that does not want to take personal responsibility that is a relatively new in the last 50 to 60 years in our societies where our problems are someone else's. That's why it's the government's problem. That's why when you have an issue with the church, you don't talk about a person. You say, oh, it's the church's issue. Not my responsibility. It's, it's the church's problem. It's the school system. It's that system of hate. It's that system of this. When you look at social justice systems, the ones that actually move into action, don't only draw attention to the system problem, but they give you steps of personal responsibility. Because it's one thing to point a, prob point a finger at a problem. It's another thing to say, I have a part in that problem. God, what is it that you need me to do? Do systems need to get better? Yes. Does government need to be held accountable? Absolutely. Can the church and the systems at large and horizon get better? Yes. But I think sometimes when we see the, the lack of accountability or we see problems in the corporate, we, we tell ourselves that we no longer have responsibility individually. And we will sit in apathy and inactivity and we will say, well, if you don't figure yourself, I'm not going to get involved. And we forget that the corporate is only there as a collection of the individuals. We see that there's a personal responsibility that repairs to the wall always start with your house. Repairs in the city start with and are contingent on and strengthened by the repairs that happened in the home. But we also see a communal dependence, which is this beautiful picture in the wall. And I believe that this is what Paul talks about and takes from this imagery when he talks about the body of Christ and the interconnectivity and dependence and and unity that we're called to. It says the fact that everyone personally was responsible for their own section led to communal buy-in. What do I mean by that? The protection of everyone rested on the unity and the purity of the wall as a whole, which means if Joe is slacking off, it doesn't matter how good my house is, if his house is weak, the enemy can come in there. 
I love that it wasn't just my own house, my own wall, my own yard. No, it is one unified, undivided wall in perfect symmetry and purity and integrity that you could not separate the strength of the individual from the strength of the whole. And we see this because there were certain people that thought they were too good to put their necks towards the work. The nobles, I think it's in verse 13, says they didn't. And what happened? It it wasn't like, oh, we're not going to do our work, so there was holes in the wall. No, it meant someone else had to do double duty. And so we see that some of the Levites are like, man, if you're not, I need to step in and help in this situation because there's issues. And and if your wall is not built, my house is not safe. And so we see that this individualistic culture that we live in, that thinks I can exist in and of myself, that I don't need to be a part of something bigger. I can love Jesus, but I don't love the church. It's not only an illogical thought, it's a demonic thought. Because not only does it make you weak, but it makes the church weak. You cannot divide the individual from the corporate. We're called to both. And we see as the Nehemiah built, he understood this and they led into this. The power of diversity. I love this. See, all different people, they're all committed and poor. We saw that there was rulers and, and, and priests and servants and men and women and daughters and sons. And, and we got goldsmiths. We got perfumers building a gate. He didn't know how to build a gate. But he lived next to the gate, so he was responsible. You know what he probably did? Hey, Joe, I know you build gates. You need to help me, bro. Because he had responsibility to the whole. And Joe's like, yeah, I don't want to die. I'm going to help you. And so there was this mutual responsibility. We see the word repair mentioned 35 times in various forms in this chapter. Chapter, The word has this idea of strengthening, encouraging, and making something strong. Friends, that's the call of the church. The Bible says that we must be built up and prepared. According to Ephesians 4.12, it says the purpose of the community, the whole, is to equip the individuals, the saints, for the work of the ministry. The idea behind equipping is not just so that you can be informed, but so that you can be prepared for action. The idea behind equipping is to prepare, to strengthen, to make ready for use. We come together as Christians to strengthen one another, to make us strong and to be able to live for Jesus and serve him outside of the gathering of the church. And yeah, that looks a little bit different right now. But God's word doesn't change. How, and we might need to get creative. As to, man, how can we continue to support each other so that we can be light in the world around us? And it's not just so we can be light. Let's be honest. We're better together. I've wrestled with this. I'm like, okay, the call of the church and how are we doing this? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're supposed to be for the community, absolutely. But I'm on, I need you. And you need me. I'm not whole without you. I can't do this alone. If this year has taught me nothing else, it's like, man, I need to fight. Whether it's on a Zoom call that I absolutely detest, but I'm going to get on it because at least it lets me see someone's eyes and I can cry with them and I can pray with them and we can talk. And yeah, it's not ideal, but it's also temporary, hopefully, uh, and in these situations. But we're committed to the unity. And so it means I'm going to put myself and I'm going to expend energy to be connected to the whole even though I don't have to as the individual. See, the clear call is to rebuild. How will you respond? So those are the themes that we see. And quickly, there's two specific things that they built that I think we can take some spiritual application to in our own lives. Um, 
You see that the, the, the place in, in, in Jerusalem is a state of ruins. And there's a command to rebuild the wall and the gates. We see this again and again. Ten different gates mentioned, and there's walls in all different spots and places. Before we can continue, I want to be really clear, because as I was prepping this, I was struggling with this a bit. A bit. We're going to be talking about how we need walls in our lives to protect us. Now we need gates to, to monitor what comes in and out. But I want to be very careful that we don't make the mistake that Nehemiah and Ezra made, that the enemy is not people. The enemy is not culture. The enemy is not those dirty, unsaved people. Again, if you're new to church, this is a little bit of family talk here. But I think we will err into bad theology if we think that we need to build walls and gates that protect us so they do not corrupt us. That's coming to the incorrect conclusion that you are not already corrupted in the deepest part of you because of sin. We don't need to protect who we are. We need to be transformed by the light of Jesus so that we can be who we are called to be. The Bible says we, uh, we battle against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and principalities. The enemy is the devil. It is not your neighbor. The enemy is the devil. It is not Bonnie Hen uh, Henry. The enemy is it's not Justin. No, 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 no. Let's be very careful. It's not the opposing uh, political party. It's not that person that has a different opinion than you. It's not that person that runs the church differently than you think you should. It's not that family member that thinks differently than you should. It's not that person that has a different sexual orientation than you do, that has a different identity than you do no the enemy is spiritual and the call of God's people has always been to be strong so that we can transform let's be very careful and very clear who our enemy is because Ezra and Nehemiah although they did great works led to the pharisaical problems of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus had to tear down because they forgot that the original promise to Abraham was to bless to be a blessing, was to build something so amazing that the nations of the world would come and could learn from and take and expand. So that's the goal. But we also want to make sure that we don't swing to the other side of the pendulum and go into the world and look just like it, talk like it. Handle our sex like it, have, handle our relationships, our marriages like it, our conversations, our thoughts. We're called to something different. Look at the walls. What were they, the walls? Physically, they were made of stone. And it's interesting, if you go back into chapter 2, it says, as he's taking his assessment, it says that the walls were knocked down and the gates were burnt. Which tells me that the gates were wooden, they were less um, stonish. <laughs> they were wood, right? They moved, they're a little bit mobile, but these walls were not meant to really be moved. Uh, a broken, uh, broken down in, capa in, capac or in captivity, Nehemiah's walls is actually much smaller. We see this kind of interesting, we won't get into that today, um, but the wall he builds is like a, th a fifth of the size of what it was, uh, but it was meant to actually maintain what they had. Growth would come, but if they wanted to do too much and didn't have the capacity to maintain and occupy, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, these walls, once set, wouldn't have changed very often. Uh, it's, and the, the, the purpose of the wall was to support the life within and keep out the opposition from without. Little to no thought were put into the walls once they were established. They became second nature. See, the walls of homes would have been connected to the wall of the city like we talked about with that personal responsibility. So as we talk about walls, let us not simply imagine ancient stones and mortar, but let us imagine the decisions, the values, the habits, the routines, the schedules that make up our lives. 
that guide our own families. I'm going to go back to that little to no thought given to after it. Sometimes our lives are ran by decisions, processes, and values that we're unconscious of. And it becomes just how we operate in life. And God has provided you a moment of reflection. A moment to say, God, would you search me? God, would you show me what needs to be broken? And God, would you send me in a new direction if you need to? And in this moment, what was before? I think here's some helpful questions. You want to write them down. What was before COVID that actually should have never been? Rather than going back to, we need to get back to what was, you should first ask the question, is it worth going back to? What patterns, habits, routines, schedules in my life weren't actually protecting me and getting me to my preferred future in Christ and community? What values were professed but never practiced? And second, what values were practiced weekly that we would never profess if asked? Thought patterns, arguments in your own head, how you handle your money, when you decide to get involved, if it's convenient or not. What are these values? How, what are the guiding principles, the protecting coverings, not only around your own house, but our community? See, we can easily find ourselves in a, in a state of constant stress, pressure, and a state of survival, only responding to emergencies, and it seems like there's a fire in our life all the time. Maybe rather than trying to put out fire, 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 you need to stop and say, God, is there walls that are unbuilt in my life? Is there principles and values that, as according to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, for those who are burnt out, tired, burnt out on religion, come to me, I will give you what? Rest for your soul. And it's not just rest as a gift. He says, learn from me. Watch how I do it. Rest leads to work in Jesus. When we come to Jesus, it leads to living and working a new way. Values are changed. Processes are changed. And it's meant to better you and protect you and transform you, not just to delight you. What are those values? See, we're never meant to live this way. Now is the time to pause and look at what might be causing us to go from one emergency to the next. What does that look like for you? We talk about personally. It's our responsibility in our own lives to stop. Each person was responsible to build the wall. When each wall is built well, the whole wall is strong. So the question is left to ask, how are your walls? What are the things, the schedules, the budgets, the how you spend your time, what you decide as a family to do, as an individual to do in your school, in your university, in your job, with whatever it is? How do you value and make sure it's practiced and put into action, not just professed? Maybe a good question is, what should be built into our walls that we just never seem to get there? We know that prayer, Bible reading, serving, worship, Sabbath, mutual submission to each other, how we spend our time, talents, treasures, we know those are values we should have. Can you see them actually practiced in your life? And if not, what a great place to start having a conversation. And what are the things in your walls that, if you're honest, they should not be there? They're causing a fracture, and they don't line up with the unity of what God has called this community of people, too. How you handle your thoughts, your, your conversations, your arguments, your confrontation, what you, uh, the schedule that your family runs. If you know church is super important, do you allow a schedule to keep you out of church three weeks out of the month? Come on. I think I've talked to some people who are like, man, COVID's been such a gift because it's caused us to reassess how fast a pace we were living before. Can I throw this one out there to you? Sabbath? 
Pastor Craig talked about it in the summer. Do you actually value it? Is there, hopefully if there's leftovers, it'll get there. Because Jesus lived at a pace that was slow. Oh, you don't get it, Daniel. There's too much going on. Well, like, as Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for you? Like, we need to stop and allow Holy Spirit to search us. And this is something that I found, uh, actually, we'll get to that next. And it's helpful for both. But what are the things in your wall that, if you're honest, you should not be there as a student in high school? How do you handle things? How do you, do you walk with integrity, the values that you do, and how you treat people and how you think? The single person, how you build relationships. Do you make an idol out of, out of things that shouldn't be there? Just your own freedoms, what you want to do. How, how do we handle that? The parent in their, in their relationships or maybe if the separation and dealing with how do I do that? How do I handle kids? What does that look like? The, 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 the grandparents, whatever it is, how do we do this? How are we doing personally? There needs to be a personal responsibility to say, God, what have I allowed into my life? I'm not going to blame anyone else. This is my house. God, is it the way you want me to? Not only person, but community as well. This is the undeniable interdependence we are called to have with each other. As the church, can I ask you this, please? And this is more of a, might be more of a pet peeve. And not, but I was, I was honestly praying about it. I said, God, is that, should I share that? Should I not? I don't want to do it with the wrong motives. And hopefully this will help someone. Because it's not the initial offense or the, the initial statement, but I think it's, it's the mindset that it puts you in afterwards that can be really damaging. So it, the, the, the possibility of offending someone, I'm hoping it's going to save you from a whole lot more than just offense. See, as the church, for those watching right now, followers of Jesus that call Horizon home, or maybe you're watching another church that whatever your home is, could we all commit to something? To stop referring to the church in relationship to your problems. And what I mean by that is, I went through a hard time and the church was never there. I've had someone tell me that and I looked at him and I said, what am I? Because we can throw off personal responsibility all we want, but it's going to lead you to a place that you actually think you are not the church. Friends, family, we can't say it enough. You are the church. If this last year has taught you nothing, it's not this building. It's not this organization. It's you. And if what you really mean is the church staff, please say it and have a conversation because there's disunity and we need unity because the integrity of the wall is more important than confrontation and the uncomfortability it takes to walk in that. Can we love each other enough to deal with our issues and go to the person and not blanket it with the church that removes me from personal responsibility and just throws it on the corporate? And the only thing I've ever seen this lead to is lack of involvement, of lack of engagement, and apathy. If you got an issue, please name it, because at least then you know what you're dealing with. Open, honest relationship where we help each other grow. Committing to fight the cultural current of individualism and fight to be part of the valued, Christ-centered community, however that may look whether it's in this room or not, 
I'm committed to the Christ-centered community that Jesus is building called the church. It's not the church. I am the church. You are the church. If you follow Jesus, call Horizon Home. Wherever you go, the church is. Oh, the church should do more what I'm doing. It is because you're there. The church should be involved in the workplace. It is because you're there. The church should help the poor. No, no, you need to help the poor because you're part of the church. And out of that personal responsibility, that may lead to a corporate expression, but it may not. But what God has put on your heart as the church, please be obedient to walk in it. Let's stop blanketing responsibility to the blank. And again, I, I honestly could care less if it's just like all oh, this, and because I work at the church, I hear me. I think it leads to a really damaging, unhealthy, internal, subconscious wall in your life that causes you not to get engaged. And God may be putting that frustration in you to help build something new. How is God asking you to commit to unity and community in a new way during this season? What are your walls? I love that when the city walls were strong, it actually would funnel all intake and outtake to what are called gates. So when we have values in our life that are Christ-centered, it actually limits and funnels into this acute moment the things that come in and out of our lives. There's certain things you don't need to worry about because there's a wall there. And it's well built and it becomes, it might be work at first. If you're new to Christ, there's going to be values that are new to you. Lastly, we're going to keep going here. Gates. What were these? These were wooden, previously burnt by fire, capacity, or in captivity. These weren't permanent, allowed something in, kept others out. This is a key point of entry. It mandated consistent monitoring because these were the only places where someone could get in. The elders were there. Decisions were made there. Uh, uh, justice was, was, was carried forth in these moments. And as we mentioned, gates being rebuilt, let's simply not think of big ancient wooden doors, but allow the Holy Spirit to ask us what we've been allowing into our lives through our thoughts and into our hearts. Walls are kind of those values, but gates are, this is our thought life. This is our hearts. See, Socrates said this, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think this is something we know we need to do as Christians, but we fail to do so often. Let's examine what are we thinking about. We often don't think about the things we think about. See, I think something that Christians know is important. And as I've been asking the Holy Spirit, me personally over this last, uh, since January, the search me, the personal evaluating I found a tip that's really helpful. It might just be me, but it pinpoints where I need to work on. Anytime I get defensive or I start rationalizing is normally exactly where Holy Spirit wants to work. So if you rationalize certain things people bring up in your life who love you and honor Jesus, that just might, that might be a point where God's asking you to work on. You see, when West, my nephew, comes over to our house, when we open the door to West, it changes the culture of our house. He's five and he's a whirlwind, and there's toys everywhere, and he's full of life. But that doesn't happen if I don't allow it in the gate, in the door. See, we're responsible. Some of us, we are held captive to what we allow into our lives because we have no guard on our thoughts. We have no guard on our hearts. We have no guards on our eyes. We have no guards on our iPhones or whatever it is, and we allow things in. Personally, what does this look like? Setting a guard around your heart and your thoughts. A couple verses for us to look at. Philander, you want to jump up on the keys? If we can, I'm not sure. I, I didn't plan that. So if it's not possible, that's okay. But Colossians 3, 1 to 2. The Bible says to set your mind and your heart on things above. How often do we do that? How are the gates in your life? If you were to evaluate and take, uh, 
just take thought and take note of all your thoughts this week, how many were on the kingdom and how many were on our situations, whether you're in high school, single, college, married, uh, divorced, grandpa, whatever it is, what are our thoughts on? Number two, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It implores us to take captive every thought. This has a picture of like an armed guard at the city gate saying, hey, where does this thought come from? Is it helpful? Is it not? Does it belong to Jesus? Does it come from Jesus? Or is it my flesh or is it a spiritual attack? We never stop to think about the things we think about. Young man, married man, where do you allow your thoughts to go? I'm not doing anything. Jesus raises the bar. You're called to better freedom than that. College-aged girl that's trying to, to just, just to make it happen and fight in the world and, and, and all you're being told is that you're never going to get a job like a man and, or what it is, all these, the different turmoil, what it means to be a young woman in today's culture, everything crashing down. We're, we're just called to more than that. God's got a better future for you than that. Don't allow yourself to just play what could happen wrong or the possibilities and the self-talk that you're not this, that you're not that, that you're only a result of the things that were done to you. Whatever it is, put a guard on your mind. Because what goes into your mind begins to come out of your heart and then out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. We need to reevaluate and start. And I'm telling you, when you start doing this, it takes work. Oh my God, it takes a lot of work. Because for some of us, our gates have been unmanned for our whole lives. Jesus calls us to a level of personal responsibility where we stand at that gate and we ask every single thought, where do you come from? In Proverbs 24, 23, some of what I talked about is how you guard your heart. Are you easily offended? Do you play arguments or potential arguments in your head again and again to make sure you know how to win? I've been there. Where do we direct our heart when things that we don't like come? What do we allow in? And gates don't only allow things in, but the guard says, hey, if there was something in Israel, if there was found to be a, something that should not belong in Israel, an enemy, the guards would have taken it and would have taken it out. Gates not only allow the right things in, but it allows the wrong things to go out. Forgiveness to go out. Bitterness to go out. Brokenness to go out. Competition and comparison to go out. Then we need to set biblical godly gates. Why does it matter? Don't forget that the Israelites were rebuilding. Because at one point, their gates were not manned the way they should be. And at one point, their walls were not as strong as they should be. And idolatry and compromise got in, and it left to ruins. God's got more for us than that. The call, there's a clear call to rebuild. The response is, how will you respond? And so today, if you're watching and you don't know Jesus, um, I want to draw attention to the very first verse of chapter 3. I believe it's for you. Whatever you're watching right now, I just, I just really believe that maybe you're sitting there like, Daniel, my life is a wreck. My life is in shambles. Like, I'm broken. If there's something that, that, that could be for me, I need this. I need hope. I need community. It says, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work to rebuild the sheep gate. This is the first gate. This is where they started. 
And for you and I, if we're going to rebuild the walls of our lives, we need to start here as well. What do I mean? The sheep gate was the specific gate that was very close to the temple. And the sacrificial lambs and sheeps would have been brought through this gate. And their only purpose was to pay for the sins and the penalty of the people. So they would have come through this gate needed to be established so that forgiveness can be given to the people, although it was temporary. But God loved me and God loved you too much to leave it in that state. So Jesus came through the gate of humanity and he put on flesh and he put on blood and he walked among us. He lived sinless. And Jesus, as the sacrificial lamb would have, took your sin upon him, took my sin upon him. He did not just die for, but he died as our sin. And he forgave it. He made it possible for us to rebuild our lives in light of kingdom, not in light of self. And his and his conquering of the grave and resurrection afforded you and I a new life. Where do we start? You can simply pray this prayer with me. If you're like, Daniel, I need to rebuild my life. Say, Jesus, I, I first realized that I need to rebuild. God, I'm a sinner. And I need you. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin and my sin nature? Would you remove that from me, God? Lord, would you put your Holy Spirit in me that would lead and guide me in how to build and where to build? Not only me and my life, but God, would you place me in a community that will help me build well? Jesus, would you forgive me and come into my heart? If you prayed that today, I want to encourage you to reach out to someone. If nothing else, please, prayer at horizonchurch.ca. We would love to pray with you because if you started this journey, you are not a building and a wall unto yourself. You are welcomed into the community that God is building his church. And for us, search me, break me, send me. That's it. I love this. As I was looking at this, what's our next practical step? Because I wanted this to be really practical. See, Nehemiah had to go through this first himself. We see in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, God is searching Nehemiah and reveals what's wrong. In verses 1, 4 to 11, God breaks Nehemiah and his heart for what's the situation, what the next step is. And in Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, he's sent out to do what God had called him to. So first, for you today, you need to honestly, if you haven't done these yet, take time, set time apart, pray these, journal this out, write this down. God, would you search me? Search my walls, search my gates, God. Would you show me anything that needs to be broken off or changed, things that are there that should not be? And God, would you show me the steps, send me in the steps in the direction I need to rebuild? But it's not just God, send me. Search me, break me, send me. It's God, search us, break us, send us. Because it's not just personal, it's corporate and community. We, <coughs> excuse me, we see that Nehemiah, in chapter 2, verses 9 to 16, he does that assessment like we started today with. And he says, God has sent us, or God is searching us. And there's an assessment of not just me, but corporately where are we at. And 2, 17 to 20, God begins to break and says, hey, here's what needs to be fixed. And all of chapter 3 is that God send us as together corporately we go and build. What does that mean for you? Can I encourage you, please? Find someone who loves Jesus and loves you and invite them into this process of search me, break me, send me. Submit yourself to them mutually. Say, hey, would you help me? I haven't done a great job of this in the past because the values that are broken in your life are different than mine. They may be. And the gates, you might need different things in the gates of your mind and your heart and your thoughts you need to deal with, but we are not 
meant to do life alone. So could I ask you, this is not just a great thought or a great idea. This leads to incredible practicing and practical steps for you to take. So the call is to rebuild the wall. The question is, will we rebuild? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, I pray that you would stir this in us, not just a great thought or just some scripture, but God, would we apply this? That God, individually and corporately and community, God, we would just be stronger. And we would not lose sight of the reason and the purpose of our strength is not to protect from that dirty outside world, but is that we might be whole enough to go transform the world around us. Jesus, we love you. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Horizon Church. To find your next step, visit horizonfam.ca. Have a great week.